For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. Community Church, formerly Xenos Christian Fellowship. And I want to share some thoughts with you. I know that we're in some troubling times right now. But I believe that, especially in the midst of crisis, we find that trials can actually breathe life into biblical passages that are very familiar. So why don't I just begin with a little bit of prayer, and then we'll get started. Father, we thank you that you are sovereign. And we live at a time where there's a lot of uncertainty, there's a lot of fears. This is an unprecedented time. And more than ever, we need your comfort, we need your encouragement, and most importantly, we need your hope. And so as I pray, I pray as we go through this passage tonight, that you would provide those things for us. In Jesus' name, amen. So I wanted to share a few thoughts from Psalm 23, which it's a very interesting passage because it's only six verses, and yet it's densely packed with encouragement and comfort and hope. And I think that's particularly important, especially in light of the last couple weeks where our lives have been turned upside down. And I think that one of the things that we find in Psalm 23 is that it provides us incredible hope. Let's begin by reading the entire passage. Psalm 23, a psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me, and surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I'm certain as you read through this passage with me, the first thing that really stood out to you is this part right here in verse 4, I fear no evil. Obviously, we're living at a time where many people in our country are fearing. We are at a time where we feel a lot of uncertainty about our future. I think that we face a number of different fears. First of all, we fear not being able to pay our bills. Yesterday at 2 p.m., I got my hair cut, and I go to the same stylist that I've gone to for many, many years. She's from Cambodia. And when I went to her shop at 2 p.m., I asked her to turn on the governor's address and to listen for the new orders that would be coming out that day. And so as she was completing my haircut, Governor DeWine was talking, and at the end of it, he announced that they would close all salons and all barbershops. And she looked at me and said, what am I going to do? How am I going to pay my bills? And she nearly broke into tears. And it was very difficult for me as I, I sat there. I didn't know how to comfort her or how to help her out. And so I think many of us are in the same place where we are unemployed right now. We have been laid off. Some of us just found out that our businesses might be closing. And so we're at a time right now where there's a lot of uncertainty People are worried about how they're going to keep the lights on, how they're going to pay the bills, how they're going to pay the rent. 
For others, we fear our own health. Maybe we're vulnerable. Maybe we're immunocompromised. Maybe we're within the population where the mortality rate for this virus is the highest. And that concerns us. We're afraid. Still others are afraid not only for their own health, but also for the health of their loved ones as well. Maybe we are the primary caretakers of our elderly parents. Maybe we're worried that if we fall ill and it's grave, who's going to take care of our family? Who's going to provide for them? And so we sit there and we fall into this this anxiety that overtakes us. Also, I think there's a fear of our loved one's health. I know that I'm sort of in this camp where you know, I'm not really that worried about my health necessarily or my family's health. We're, we're pretty young and healthy. But my parents, my mom, she's in her 80s. My dad, he's in his mid-70s. And it was very difficult. I had to make a call on Monday to tell them that the weekly time that they spend with my kids, their grandkids, wouldn't be happening for the foreseeable future. You know, my parents, they love me. And usually whenever they show up to my doorstep to pick up my kids, they'll greet me and say, hey, and then push us aside and say, so where are the kids? And so this was incredibly difficult for them to realize that they wouldn't be spending time with their grandkids, which is really the highlight of their week. And so this personally impacts me as it probably impacts you. I think for some of us, we fear losing control. We feel like control has been ripped out of our hands. And for some of us, this is bringing up things from the past, things that we have sequestered from our minds, feelings that we have repressed, times where tragedy has struck and we felt like control was seized from us or when somebody came and took control away from us. And so these trying times are causing us to relive these things again. They're, they're coming back up to the surface. Now, I think it's important for us to point out that not all fear is bad. I think when you look at fear, fear is a neurophysical response. And fear is there to help you survive dire situations. It prevents you from doing things that could hurt you or other people. When you, when you jump into your car and you envision yourself getting ejected from your car because you get into a car crash, that fear causes you to put your seatbelt on. When there's an absence of fear, it can actually be very dangerous. I was watching this incredible documentary called Free Solo where this climber scaled this 3,000-foot uh, face granite face without any ropes and you think to yourself fear was not in place there to save him from potentially his own death and some of us we may not be taking this very seriously we feel like I'm not afraid of my health I'm pretty healthy and so we find that this is an opportunity maybe to go and spend more time with our friends ignoring the kind of impact that this may have not only on our parents but maybe our grandparents or other people's family that are vulnerable. One of the things that I find is that the Bible often tells us, do not be afraid. 
Some authors say that that's the most often commanded thing in the Bible. In fact, Clive Calver, who was the former director of World Relief, came and spoke at our summer institute years ago. And I remember one of the lines he said was, God commands that we should not be afraid 366 times, one for every day of the year and one just in case there's a leap year. And I think the reason why God tells us do not be afraid is that fear can be paralyzing. When we succumb to our fears, we find that we are, are locked in. We're unable to, to step out and think of others and to have compassion on others. We find ourselves becoming self-protective. In other cases, fear may cause us to lash out at people. These are times where we really need to consider the kind of unity that we should preserve within our spiritual community. Because what we'll find is that there is this underlying fear that is driving us, and we'll find ourselves lashing out in anger against those who we feel like are not taking this seriously. Also, fear is often the enemy of faith. That's the reason why God over and over again tells us Don't be afraid. It's because fear often holds us back from taking those scary steps of faith. And we see that often faith is accompanied with growth. And so when there is no faith, there is no growth. And if we give in to fear, we're going to find ourselves unable to take these steps of faith that we need in order to grow. Now, I think it's important to understand that fear doesn't just go away by telling ourselves, stop being afraid. A few months ago, I did this series called Finding Peace, where we talked about well-being. And one of the things that we talked about was this idea of thought stopping. When you're feeling anxious, when you're feeling worried, simply telling yourself, just stop. That doesn't work. In fact, researchers have found that when we try to tell ourselves to stop thinking about that very thing that we're worried about, we actually think about that even more. That's because we're expending a lot of energy trying to stop thinking about the very thing that we're worried about. What we see with David is that he is able to allay his fears because of the one who is with him, because God is with him. He says, for you are with me. So I want to spend the rest of our time just talking about Who is this person that David was able to trust, who was able to alleviate the fears that he had? So let's begin in verse 1 again. David says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. So he uses God's actual name, his personal name. Anytime you look in a biblical text and you see that Lord is all is capitalized. That's an indication that in the Hebrew, that's actually God's personal name, Yahweh. And it's interesting because it translates I am or I am that I am. And when you look at the verb, the the divine name is an active, present, continuous verb to be. And of course, scholars have sort of puzzled over what does this mean? But some things are pretty evident from this. First of all, God is continually present 
and active in our lives as our deliverer. Some of us, when we think of God, we sort of think of God as this deistic God. He's sort of removed from everyday life, especially our lives in particular. And so when we think about the God of the Bible, we should think of him as the kind of God who wants to be involved, who wants to relate to us, who can understand the kind of suffering and trials that we're going through. Secondly, God is ever independent and he's sovereign. Notice the the personal name of God isn't I was or I will be, it is I am. God is self-sufficient. Within the Godhead, he has all of his needs met. He doesn't need human beings or any of his creation in order to survive. In fact, when God decides that he wants to create, he speaks things into existence. And so one of the implications from this is that when we look at God, he's able to do something about the things that trouble us. He's able to do something about the trials that we face in real life. Also, God is adequate to meet our needs. We're at a time now where we feel insecure. We're worried about our family. We're worried about ourselves. Everything seems uncertain right now. Everything seems like it's in flux. And yet God says, no matter what happens, I can take care of your needs. I can meet them. Really, there should be an ellipsis after God's name. I am the security that you're looking for in life. I am the source of love that you so desperately need and are looking for. I am the source of significance that seems to be missing in your life. And I am the one in whom you can place your hope. So just within God's name, we find that it's pregnant with meaning and hope and assurance. Also, David talks about how God is like our shepherd. And if you know anything about David and his life, in 1 Kings we, we, or 1 Samuel, we find out that David was a shepherd long before he was ever a king. In fact, the things that he learned shepherding his family's flock prepared him for what he would do as the shepherd of Israel, the king. So this metaphor was probably something that came from his experience in his youth as he was walking along and tending the flock. Now, when you think about shepherding, I mean, if there was an ancient version of dirty jobs, shepherding would be in the list of things. We see that shepherding was hard work and often dangerous. It wasn't like the shepherd could simply let the sheep walk around the pasture. The shepherd often had to direct the sheep in this semi-arid area to green pastures and to water. So it was very difficult and often very dangerous as the shepherd would take the sheep, the flock, to these watering spots or to lush pasture. Often the shepherd would encounter predators that would try to eat the sheep, and so they would find themselves risking life and limb in order to try to protect their sheep. Shepherds cared deeply for their flock. When shepherds would take care of their flock, they would often take care of these sheep for over 10 years. So they actually developed a a relationship with these animals, almost like your household pet. Because they wouldn't slaughter it for mutton. They would would actually use their wool, and also they would harvest their milk 
to feed their family. So these sheep were important to the family. And in the same way, when we look at God, he cares deeply for us. I think sometimes we tend to envision God as just distant, that he doesn't care, that he sort of wound up the universe and walked away. And yet, what we're told is that the God of the Bible is incredibly personal. Shepherding is also a common metaphor for Israel's leaders. Often, God calls the kings of Israel shepherds of his flock. And yet, one of the things you'll notice through the history of Israel, especially in the period of kings and chronicles, is that many of Israel's kings cared very little for the nation. In fact, They exploited the people. They took advantage of the fact that um, these people were paying taxes and were subservient to them. And so God, in an exasperated tone, actually confronts the kings in Ezekiel 34. He says, Woe to the shepherds of Israel who only take care of themselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? You have not strengthened the weak or healed the sick or bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strays or searched for the lost. You've ruled them harshly and brutally. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And they were scattered and they became food for all the wild animals. God says, I will save my flock and they'll no longer be plundered. I'll place over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will tend them. He will be their shepherd. The Lord will be their God. And they will know that I, the Lord, their God, am with them. One of the things that's really interesting about this passage is how often God says, I'm going to do this. He says, I will save my flock. I will place over them one shepherd. I, the Lord, will be their God. He says that over and over again because the kings of Israel had basically given up their duty. They they had vacated their responsibility to their people. And so God said, I'm going to do it myself as the good shepherd of the flock. Now, what's interesting is that he mentions David, my servant. And yet, what's interesting is Ezekiel was written around 600 AD, hundreds of years after David was already dead. So what we find here is that this is actually a passage that predicts the coming of David's descendant, the chosen one, who would be the liberator and savior of the entire world. Hundreds of years later, Jesus steps on the scene and he says, I am the good shepherd. This was God's answer to the kings who essentially had given up on God's flock. And he goes on to say, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. This is really at the essence of God's character. I think sometimes when we think about God, we think about somebody who wants to restrict our freedoms. Somebody who wants to take away the fun in our lives. Somebody who wants to just set up rules that we need to live by. And yet what we find is that God, far from wanting to take from us, like the kings of Israel, wants to give us abundantly. The Bible teaches that God, in his love, came in the man Jesus Christ. 
and he paid for the moral wrongdoings that we deserve to pay ourselves. And he did that because he is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. In an earlier passage in the Old Testament, Isaiah 53, again, hundreds of years before Jesus even entered the scene, Isaiah predicted the coming of this anointed one, the servant of God. He says, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has turned his own way and the Lord has laid on him the sins of us all. That was God's purpose in sending Jesus. Some of you might be thinking about Christianity and what you associate with Christianity is rules or doing good works to earn your salvation or to earn God's favor. But the Bible says that God actually has given us incredible grace that he sent his own son, Jesus, to try to bring us back to him. You know, some of you might be sitting there and you've been far away from God. You've been astray. And what God wants you to know is that he loves you. He wants to take care of you. He wants to bring direction into your life amidst confusion. One of the things that I love is God's response to people who finally take a humble posture and turn to him in faith. In Luke 15, verse 4 through 7, Jesus says, Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he, doesn't he leave the 99 and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, what does he do? He angrily scolds it and threatens to make lamb chops. No, that's not what he says. We're told he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and says, Rejoice with me, for I have found my lost sheep. God is longing to be in a relationship with you. But he's not going to impose himself upon you. He's not going to force you to be in a relationship with him. And so he's giving you an offer. Do you want to receive forgiveness? And in doing so, God is going to rejoice because he's found one of his lost sheep. Now, if God is the shepherd then by implication, we are the sheep, which is not really a flattering thing. Now, when you think about sheep, sheep are really the only domesticated animal that cannot go wild. You let loose a cat, a dog, a horse, or even a pig, what, are they, what, what happens? They slim down. They grow more cunning. They get by. What happens when you release a sheep into the wild? They get eaten. What about fight or flight? You think about sheep, really they don't have anything to defend themselves. I don't, I've never seen a sheep bear its teeth to try to ward off predators. They don't have a shell or fangs or claws to defend themselves. What about flight? You think about sheep, they have poor eyesight, they have a bad sense of direction, they have poor stamina. Not to mention, they don't really blend into their surroundings, they're pure white. Not to mention, their best strategy for running away is to follow the sheep right in front of them. 
A number of years ago, the USA Today um, magazine put out this article called 450 Sheep Jump to Their Deaths. I'm sure you can see where this is going. It starts off, first one sheep jumped to its death. Then stunned Turkish shepherds who had left the herd to graze while they had breakfast watched as nearly 1,500 others followed, each leaping off the same cliff, Turkish media reported. In the end, 450 dead animals lay on top of one another in a billowy white pile, the Askham newspaper said. Those who jumped later were saved as the pile got higher and the fall more cushioned, Askham reported. So this is their sole strategy. And when you think about sheep, you know, it's not really flattering, but when you think about where God is at, and where we are by comparison in terms of intelligence and power, we really are sheep from his perspective. That we are without direction, that we're vulnerable, that we're dependent, even though we want to convince ourselves that we're not. A lot of times we think that we know the best direction for our lives. And yet like sheep, we don't have a great sense of direction. We think about times like this where there are a lot of trials that are throwing us into confusion. And we find uncertainty coming into our minds, perplexity overtaking us. And what God is saying is, I'm the good shepherd. You don't have to try to direct your own life anymore. I want to take on that responsibility. That's a great weight that you have placed on your shoulders but I want to do that for you. I want to direct you in your life. And so for some of us, what that means is for maybe the very first time, taking a posture of humility and trusting God to take the first step of faith toward him. For others of us, followers of Christ, this means trusting him for the direction of our lives. Maybe we've been resisting him and his direction. And maybe a time like this has caused us to reconsider, maybe I should listen to God. Maybe I should follow his lead because things aren't really going that well for me. Also, David says, the Lord is my shepherd. Again, he emphasizes the personal nature of God. You know, in the Easter, some Eastern conceptions of God, God is in everything. He is the ground of all being. And so human beings, inanimate objects, they're all part of God. And yet the God of the Bible says that we are separate from him. And what God wants is a personal relationship with us. He wants to, to get to know us as we would a friend or a father or a loved one. In verse 2, he says, He makes me lie down in green pastures. And he leads me beside quiet waters. First of all, he says, he makes me lie down in green pastures. The thing about sheep is when sheep are being irritated by fleas and bugs, they're unable to settle down. And so what often a shepherd had to do is he had to find a quiet and serene place for the sheep to be able to rest. 
And again, I think that there's some parallels here to our lives. I think some of us over the last couple of weeks, even though we've had more free time than we have had in a very long time, we find that we are unable to find rest. And it's because the anxiety, the worry of this virus that's spreading is unable to give us the kind of assurance and rest that we need. The other thing he talks about is that God or the shepherd leads me beside quiet waters. Again, this was very difficult to do in the ancient Near East where the shepherd often had to travel miles with his flock to find a stream. And so what this points to is the fact that God wants to provide for our needs. He wants to take care of us, to provide us assurance and security that we can't provide for ourselves. And he says, I shall not want that God wants us to depend on him. He wants to provide. You know, one of the things that's really difficult is when we're in these kinds of situations, it seems senseless. How, why is this happening to me? Why is God allowing this tragedy to come into our, into our lives? And yet, one of the things that God assures us with is the fact that he will take care of us. In Romans 8, 23, Paul says, Since he did not even spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything? God gives us great assurance through his son. He paid an incalculable price to send his own son, Jesus, to pay for our sins. And that is proof that he is going to be able to take care of all of our needs. I mean, it stands to reason that if God would give his most prized and precious possession for us, won't he also give us all things? Verse 3, he says, The shepherd restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. And so he restores my soul. Again, God brings comfort when we are feeling weak, when we're feeling weary from worry. God can actually restore our souls. He can revive us during these times. Verse 4, he says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So he says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, in the New Living Translation, it renders this, even though I walk through the valley of death. He says, even when. Notice he doesn't say if I walk through the valley of death, but when. Ancient shepherds often had to take their sheep through these circuitous routes, through the desert and through uh, very rough terrain in order to get their sheep to green pastures. And so sometimes they had to go through these shadowy valleys filled with predators. And it was a, really a scary scene, not only for the sheep, but also for the shepherd who had to protect them. And so I think when we talk about trials that come into our lives, it's not really a matter of if they're going to happen. 
but when? And I think for some, especially the skeptic, you might be asking, if God is good, then why would he send a deadly virus like this into the world? And I think what God would say is that, you know, just because I created the universe, just because I created the world, didn't mean that I authored evil in the world. The Bible teaches that God has given us incredible free will, so much that we can alter the course of history through our decisions. And the Bible teaches that, as a result, we threw off God's leadership in our lives because of our free choice. As a result, it has sent the world that we live in spiraling in rebellion against God. And so God has withdrawn his protection because of our choice. And so just because God is sovereign and he's also able to see the future doesn't mean that he is the one causing evil in your life. An analogy that I remember hearing when I was a very young Christian that sort of helped me understand this concept was, you know, imagine if you were on the 32nd floor of a high-rise building and you saw two cars careening toward one another. You could safely predict that those two cars will probably crash, and yet your foreknowledge of that event didn't cause it. And in the same way, because God foreknows events that are going to happen in the future, doesn't mean that he's going to cause them. And yet, another reason, though, uh, that God allows suffering and trials to enter our lives is because he knows that that can actually draw us closer to him. I love how C.S. Lewis puts this. He says, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our consciences, but he shouts to us in our pain. It's a megaphone to rouse a deaf world. You might be sitting here and you haven't considered these questions of whether God exists, why is there so much evil in the world for many, many years? And yet an incident like this, this crisis that we're in, is reviving these questions. And so maybe one of the greatest outcomes of this terrible situation that we're in is that it causes you to reinvestigate whether God is real that it might actually send you on a spiritual journey that helps you discover the God who loves you. He says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Oftentimes, God has to take us through the valleys in order to get to the green pastures. But in the moment, in the time of trial, it's difficult to see where all of this is heading. And yet we have to trust the shepherd trust that he knows where this is heading. I look back on my life and a lot of times there were periods where I was so confused, where a trial had come into my life and I didn't know where any of this was heading. It seemed senseless. And yet looking back on it, God used that powerfully in my life to shape my character, to impact people in ways that I don't even know. And so God can use even the worst trials, the worst suffering in your life for redemption. And to prove that, God sent his own son, Jesus, to die. I'm certain from the standpoint of Jesus' disciples, as they were standing there, as Jesus was being crucified and near death, 
that they sat there and wondered, how is God going to use this? This is senseless. It's unjust. And yet through God's sacrifice, he was able to redeem the entire human race. How much more are trials? How much more the confusing times that we face today? Elizabeth Elliot, who is Jim Elliot's wife, famous missionary, in her memoir says, those hands that keep a million worlds from spinning into oblivion were nailed motionless to a cross for us. Can you trust him? Can you trust the God who sacrificed everything for you? Who has showed, who has demonstrated that he can take the worst tragedies and use them for good. He says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, one of the things that God tells us is that death isn't the final destination for those of us who believe in Christ. And to prove that, Jesus entered death, but emerged alive. And that gives us assurance of our future resurrection and our eternal life with God. And he says, I fear no evil, for you are with me. I think it's interesting that during these dark times, God stands beside us. When you look at the, the language in verse 2, it says, that he guides us. So the shepherd goes out before his sheep. But as he enters through the valley and brings the sheep with him, and they're afraid, he's beside them, comforting them. And so in the same way, during times of trial, during times of confusion that we face, God is right there beside us, there to assure us, there to comfort us, You know, often during these trials and confusion, those are the times when God seems closest. I think about times when I was undergoing very difficult suffering. Those were the times when I found myself pouring my heart out to God in ways that I hadn't ever. And it's because during times of trials and confusion, uncertainty, when I'm afraid, that's when I realize my own limitations. That's when I realize that I need God most. And often I emerge from those times looking back, seeing that those were the sweetest times of intimacy with God. And you may be experiencing that right now with God. And he says, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The rod was to protect the sheep from predators to ward them off. And the staff had a crook on it to try to redirect the sheep as they were straying away. So oftentimes we are going to be straying away from God. It's, it's, it's difficult to maintain a walk with God, to follow him. But God is patient, he's gracious, and he will try to redirect us back gently as the good shepherd. Finally, he says, surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. He says, surely goodness and loving kindness. That word loving kindness, that is the Hebrew equivalent of the New Testament word in Greek, grace. 
long-suffering. And what you notice there is that he says that God's goodness and his loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life. That even when I make mistakes, even when I stumble, even when I stray away, some of you have strayed away. You have been far away from God. And yet what God wants you to know is that his loving kindness, his grace, follows you all the days of your life. And finally, he says, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's our true hope, our eternal hope, the hope that one day we will be united with God. And he does that through Jesus Christ. So thanks for tuning in. Um, Next week, we are going to follow up this series on Christians in a time of crisis with um, a teaching on compassion in crisis. So why don't I just pray for us, and then I have a discussion question that I have for you if your meeting is a small group over Zoom or Google Meet. Um, It's something that you can discuss. So why don't I pray for us? Father, we are just so thankful that you are our good shepherd, that you direct us and you lead us during this time when we feel so aimless. I know that this outbreak, this pandemic, has personally affected my life and the lives of so many people who are watching right now. And I pray that you would bring them comfort. I pray that you would give them hope. And most importantly, I pray that if there are, if there are any who are just wondering whether or not they should turn to you. I pray that they would have the faith to step forward and to receive what Jesus has done and to forge that relationship with you that will last forever. And we pray that in Jesus' name, amen. This study was recorded at Zenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.